0: Heads, stop using tables to lay out your web page. No, really, stop using tables to lay out your web page. And listen up, it's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the Internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maceolik here to announce show number two hundred fifteen with guest Steve McConnell, recorded live Tuesday, January thirtieth, two thousand six. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and now offering a whole suite of on-site and remote classes in .NET 2.0 technologies. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik RAD Controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com and by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, a man, a plan, a canal... Panama. Uh, no, wait, that's something else. Uh, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much.
1: Welcome back. We've been lonely without you, Richard and I, and we're glad you're listening to .NET Rocks. I'm Carl Franklin here in New London, Connecticut, uh, not underwater yet, as I said last week, and Richard Campbell out there in Vancouver. How are you, sir? Doing really well. Glad to have been home
2: for a while for a change. Enough traveling for me. But uh, everything is good. Do you know
1: I'm on vacation right now?
2: It's an amazing thing, this whole radio thing.
1: Yeah, through the I, magic
2: of radio, we're here, but we're not here. But you're not really there. But I'm here. Yes. And I'm just glad you're taking a vacation. I know you didn't really have a choice in the matter, but well, I'm glad you did I'm it.
1: at an indoor water park in Virginia, and it's pretty cool. The reason Richard's laughing is because we're recording this in advance and I'm sitting in my booth at Poit Productions in New London. I'm nowhere near Virginia. That's where I'm going uh, by the time you're listening to this. Anyway, uh, let's see. What are we going to talk about here before we go uh, get to the guests? First of all, uh, once again, I'd like to mention our friend Greg Brill down at Infusion in New York City and uh he works with Nick Landry there and he's got a special offer for avid.net rocks listeners who want to take the plunge and go to Manhattan for a year see the sights live uh rent free in a New York City apartment for a year that's right he'll pay for your apartment and also uh if you need to go home once in a while to see the the family and the friends he'll pay for your transportation back and forth and uh You know, the whole idea is that you get to work in an exciting environment, working on stuff that, uh, you know, working in the city. What can you say? Hang out in Central Park in the weekends. It's New York.
2: It's New York. It's amazing. I stopped through New York on my uh, visit to Egypt, to Cairo. Yeah. I spent some time with Steve Forte and had a chance to look around and explore. Uh, Always a fantastic place to go.
1: Andrew Brust was uh, in the press last week. He's the other RD down in New York. Oh, yes. And, uh... Yeah, Daryl Taft wrote an article in EWeek about Vista, and uh, Andrew and Stephen Forte were both quoted because you know that's New York; that's where things happen. Yes. All right, I got uh, an email for you, Richard. Hit me. This one comes from uh, Andrew. I love any you know any email that ends with tally ho. It's a good email. I'm going to read that one. (laughs) He says, I love the subject. It's going to praise you loads in hopes that you give me some sound advice in return. Really, what he wants is swag. Hi, guys. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) I've been an avid listener of .NET Rocks for about six months now. I'm slowly working my way through the back catalog of shows, which is, as you know, huge. The show is great. I love the content and the way in which you tackle subjects is informative and easy to listen to. Coming from England, it is always a laugh to hear how passionate you and your guests come across, as we tend to be passionate in our hearts, but more reserved in our public persona. I don't know. Have you been to? Have you been to a soccer game in England lately? Uh, yeah, they're not too reserved. A football game. Sorry. Uh, well, now I Does have. That a make s- us dot
2: .NET hooligans.
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess it does. <laughs> well, only if Tim Huckabee's there involved. And then, then there's trouble. Whenever Tim Huckabee's involved, there's there's hooliganism, especially with football. All right. Uh, well, now that I have sung a little bit of your well-deserved praise, I was hoping that you would be able to give me a little bit of advice. I work for a small but well-established software company, and we are now creating the next generation of our software in Visual Basic .NET using VS 2005. The current version is in VB6. To date, our source control and bug tracking methodologies are homegrown, and while they work well, they're not integrated into the Visual Studio 2005 suite. Do you know of any good source control and or bug tracking systems that integrate with VS 2005 that are aimed for small developer teams, uh, three of us, that will not kill our budget? I look forward to hearing from you, and in the meantime, keep up the great work. Tally ho. Andrew, well, now there is Team System. Don't they have a special version that's
2: built for, like, five users?
1: I believe you're right, yes. And uh, that integrates quite nicely with Visual Studio Team System. So um, he says he's not using Team System, however. He's using Visual Studio 2005. If he had Team System, he wouldn't be emailing us, but... Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, we talked to Eric Sink in a show coming up here. Right, the next week's show. Right, and as a matter of fact, he is the, uh, developer and purveyor of Vault, which you might have heard of. And, you know, when I first saw the ads for Vault, I thought, uh, it's gotta be expensive. But it's not. It's It's really not. It looks like a movie trailer, the ad. You know, that's why I thought, I think, you know, this has gotta be expensive stuff, but... But it's really not. It's only a few hundred dollars, uh, under 500 I think, Richard, isn't it? Yeah, I think it was $350 a seat. Okay. And uh, it works really well. It's written in C Sharp. It's .dot .NET. It integrates the Visual Studio, and it's good stuff. And people that uh, I know that use it swear by it. Uh, and it's uh, sourcegear.com, I right. think. So there you go. Uh, and tell them you heard about it on .NET Rocks. And if it doesn't work, Richard said so. <laughs> this Richard's idea <laughs> alright
2: I got an email too and this one's from uh, Pete Maroon who works for Microsoft he's in the application development consultant uh, portions of the, uh, I guess uh, outside of Redmond cool uh, for, and I'm always uh, thrilled actually when I see that a Microsoft person is listening to the show that's, Me too. That, that's kind of a surprise really First of all, great show, both of you. Carl, I've been a beneficiary of your work since the early VB days. Ah. And he says CGVB, which I know means Carl, Carl and Gary's, Gary's VB Basics. homepage.
1: That's right. Uh, that was me. I was me. a fan back then too, Carl, you know. Anybody who was doing VB work, was, that was their landing page. That's where we lived. Yep.
2: The topic of this email is something that I would love to hear on an upcoming show. You may have seen this already. Stephen Forte and Internology have gotten together and are looking for developers to assist with a software development project that could assist in the accelerating of the cure for cancer. Yeah. Cancer is a subject that hits home with many of your listeners, I'm sure. Just thought this project would be a cool topic to discuss due to the involvement of the other MSRDs, like you and me. Mm-hmm. New technology, .NET 3.0, and the subject matter at hand, cancer. And he gives a link, and I shrinksterize it, shrinkster.com slash LZH. Lima Zulu Hotel. Yep. And it actually links not to Tim's blog, which I know we've referenced before.
1: Yeah, I talked about that a couple
2: weeks ago. Or to Steve's blog, who's also talked about it, but to another friend of ours. Do you know who? Uh, No, who? Ms. Eileen Crane. Oh, Eileen. The
1: former head of the RD program. Oh, not Eileen Crane anymore. Oh, right. Eileen Eileen Rumwell. Eileen Rumwell.
2: Yeah. So it's her blog, and it's about the same story. She calls it, Do You Believe That Software Can Change the World? And, of course... Naturally, we've already talked about this, and we've even talked to Tim about the original scripts app. They're now working on the second version, and that's what this is all about, is they really want to make it a worldwide effort. Yeah. And so they're picking developers from all over the world. Yeah, you don't have to
1: be in California to do this work. it's
2: all going to be work remote. Obviously, they need certain skills. They're looking for people who are into the new stuff and are able to work remotely. Uh, Steve and I talked about this when we were in Cairo a couple of weeks ago. And huge reaction to it. Very excited. I'm thinking we'll end up with an Egyptian on the team. And I hope that that happens. That'd be great. It, it's just going to be exciting to have everybody involved in this. So the product obviously is working. They're working on a second version. Steve Bombers demoed it now. I mean, it's exciting stuff. So th- this is good stuff. I'm looking forward to having it happen and go check out the blog site. And if you think you're the guy, apply, get the job and we will be
1: doing a show about this. Absolutely. In the uh, you know, by the way, uh, Brian Noyes has got a DNR TV coming up in which he demonstrates a subset of the scripts application. It just runs locally. It doesn't, you know, communicate across the web and it's freely downloadable, I believe. And, uh, and he talked about the WPF behind it. So uh, that's going to be fabulous. Uh, and you know, just one more time, a big shout out to Eileen Rumwell. Eileen, come on, Eileen! Oh, I swear, man, that <laughs> song sucked, <laughs> didn't it? But I just wanted to go. Get... <laughs> I hated that song so I bad. I but... just can't believe you did that. <laughs> <laughs> Notice I didn't do it with the guy's voice because his voice is the most annoying thing about that song. Uh, but anyway, just a big shout out to Eileen. She's uh, she was great in the RD program. She made the Bulgaria event possible. Uh, she's been a huge fan of .NET Rocks and, and helped us in many, many ways. And just you're all right, Eileen. Thanks. Yep. We love you and we miss you. We do. All right, Richard. Let's introduce Steve. Steve McConnell is CEO and Chief Software Engineer at Construct's Software, where he writes books and articles, teaches classes, and oversees Construct's Software Engineering Practices. Construct's Steve, is that right? Um. Close enough. All right. Steve is the author of Code Complete, uh, published in 1993 and again in 2004, second edition, and Rapid Development, published in 1996. Both winners of Software Development Magazine's Jolt Award. ...for outstanding software development books of their respective years. In 1998, he published Software Project Survival Guide. In 2004, he published Professional Software Development. And in 2006, he published Software Estimation, Demystifying the Black Art. Steve has worked in the desktop software industry since 1984... And has expertise in rapid development methodologies, project estimation, software construction practices, performance tuning, system integration, and third-party contract management. Steve also served as editor-in-chief of IEEE Software from 1998 to 2002 and is a member of IEEE Computer Society and ACM. Uh, Steve earned a master's degree in software engineering from Seattle University and a bachelor's degree from Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington. Please welcome the one, the only, Steve McConnell. Hi, Steve.
3: Uh, hi, how are you doing?
1: Well, we are just absolutely thrilled to have you on the show, aren't we, Richard? Absolutely.
2: Unbelievably so. The, uh, I, these are books that I have lived by
1: over the years. I'm looking at Code Complete, and just in the pra- you know the the praise part in the beginning, the names of people who like your book, uh, Martin Fowler, Grady Booch. I mean, these are the guys who basically invented major aspects of software development. They they seem to like it.
3: Well, it's great. It uh, Certainly, uh, uh, the, book, uh, the original book exceeded my expectations by uh, a pretty wide margin, and uh, it's been really gratifying over the years to see the number of people who have liked it, and like you said, some of the specific people who have liked it as well.
2: Yeah, and it, what a great start. That was your first book in 1993, and I consider it, to this day,
1: essential reading for a software developer. Yeah, it just reeks of experience. And, you know, in in hard school of hard knocks, especially, I mean, there's so much good advice packed into this book, which is why I think, you know, people really like it. Also, one thing that, you you know, you brought up in the book is there really aren't to this day very many books that, you know, fall into this category of general software development practices that transcend languages.
3: Well, I think it's a difficult topic to write about, and I think part of the reason it's difficult is that uh, you have to have uh, done a lot of work in multiple languages, for one thing, which uh, I think is a lot more common today than it was back in 1993 when the first edition came out, uh, but I also think it requires somebody who is currently rolling up their sleeves and getting their hands dirty writing, writing code, and at the same time, it requires somebody who has enough free time on their hands to... Uh, in the effort uh, that you need to, to write a book like that. And so I just don't think there are that many people who uh, have uh, a foot in each of those camps.
1: And how did you come to have all the free time?
3: Well, uh, I, I don't know that I have a good explanation for that. I think <laughs> uh, I probably got a little bit uh, further in life than a lot of people without a whole lot of attachments. And uh, at the time I wrote Code Complete, the first edition, I was able to take a year off Uh, live in a cheap apartment, I wasn't married, didn't have kids, uh, had no financial obligations to speak of, and uh, so I was able to essentially step right from writing production code into writing the book. Wow. Uh, And uh, so that was a a unique attribute of the book, I think. Uh, I was not able to duplicate that feat quite so handily when I got to the second edition.
1: Yeah, that's (laughs) how it's done, kids. (laughs) (laughs) What inspired you to write Code Complete?
2: Because it really sort of, you really get a sense there was uh, some frustration in you that you was like, i got to write this down so we don't have to learn it again.
3: Well, it it really uh, came about almost as an accident. I uh, had originally envisioned writing a magazine article because uh, at the time I wrote Code Complete, I actually had not published anything prior to publishing Code Complete. And uh, so originally I just wanted to write a magazine article about software construction I started doing some background research and uh, I assumed that there would be a lot of material out there and indeed I assumed that there would be some books out there, but as I went through and started doing some research, uh, I spent a day at at, uh, University of Washington Library and at the end of the day I thought, well gee, I haven't really found what I'm looking for, I'm not sure this book exists, and that was surprising to me because it seemed obvious that there would be a need for a book about software construction. So I went and spent a couple more days doing, just kind of uh, hanging out in the library doing research, and uh, at the end of uh, a few days of doing that, I had convinced myself, uh, number one, that there was no such book out there, and number two, that there were tons of papers, uh, journal articles, papers, and so on, um, that would form the, the backbone of the book, and so essentially, uh, I went from thinking about writing a paper to thinking about writing a book, and uh, and uh of course originally i was thinking i would write a, a 200 page book and uh how it ended up being a 800 page book is a, another story
1: well what's striking about this is its timelessness because you, as you pointed out there were some other books that you know were written for you know whatever languages of the day cobol or whatever that seem to be sort of stuck within the constructs of the the language and the technology but your book i mean there's just you know one of your things in your sections in one of the chapters is pick your programming language right so the the rest of the book is sort of language neutral and i i really like that because you're not sticking yourself in a place in time per se i mean yes it's a general time but but i mean this book will be read for years and years and years don't you think
3: i think it's uh i think it's partly true and partly not true uh when I uh, began thinking about doing a second edition, I, I knew that the language, because there are about 500 code samples in a variety of languages, I knew that those were looking pretty dated, because in the first edition, the code samples were in languages like uh, C and Pascal and GW uh, uh, Basic and Fortran, a little bit of Ada, and I don't think any of those languages, with the exception of C, were in any kind of widespread usage 10 years later. So there's yeah. no question that the book had started to look a little bit dated, cosmetically. Um, and uh, as I, so I had been carrying around in my head this idea for years that uh, the update to the book would be mostly a cosmetic update. That is, I could go through and replace the language examples with newer exam newer languages. Uh, but the principles would remain largely unchanged. But when I actually started uh, going back and looking at the book. Which I really hadn't looked at in any depth in the ten years since I first wrote it, uh, I found that actually the the content was more out of date than I had thought, and uh, it isn't so much that what was there was out of date, it was more mm. that there was a lot of new knowledge that had come into existence in the intervening period, and that just wasn't represented very well or at all
2: yeah well, and I, I got to think in nineteen ninety three nobody applied the word agile to software development yet had they. <laughs>
3: No, the word the word agile had not been applied uh, yet. Although, I- interestingly enough, I had a section in the book on incremental development practices. And, right. and uh, in the section, I actually said it's too bad that nobody has ever actually written a whole book about incremental development practices, because as a class of practices, these are exceptionally powerful practices, and that would be a, an exceptionally powerful book. And uh, so... The the word agile is not the same as the word incremental, but I do think that incrementalism and iteration are a uh, huge, huge uh, percentage of what makes up agile. And so uh, indeed, over the last uh, 10 years or so, uh, there has been a much greater focus on more iterative practices. And, and uh, so in the second edition of the book, I actually took out that section because it wasn't true anymore. There had been uh, actually quite a few books written that focused almost exclusively on more uh, incremental and iterative practices. And I think, uh, in general, the results of those have, have in fact, turned out to be uh, pretty powerful.
2: And doesn't rapid development fall into that slot as well?
3: Fall into the slot of uh, talking about that kind of practices? Yes. Oh, I would say yes and no. Um, Rapid development is not very prescriptive in saying, here is one set of practices that you ought to use. It certainly discusses... uh, various specific uh, iterative and incremental practices, and I think uh, hopefully uh, when people read it, they see that in general, it's pretty uh, enthusiastic about those more incremental and iterative practices. Um, so sure, I think it, it falls into that category a little bit, but, but I would not say that the overall thrust of rapid development is mostly to uh, endorse iterative or, or uh, incremental practices.
1: In the uh, preface, you say, my primary concern in writing this book has been to narrow the gap between knowledge of industry gurus and professors on the one hand and common commercial practice on the other. Um, Many powerful programming techniques hide in journals and academic papers for years before trickling down to the programming public. Um, Did you think you uh, reached that goal with this book? I mean, you sort of brought a lot of things to light that, that we hadn't thought about before.
3: Well, that was certainly my intent, and uh, uh, there's no question that the book, uh, over its lifetime, has sold much better than a lot of the academic journals uh, that contain the papers that it it cites. So, uh, yeah, I think, uh, hopefully, without being too immodest, I do think the book has uh, accomplished that. I do think that there have been a lot of good practices that uh, don't get anywhere near the airtime that they deserve, and so capturing them between the two covers of the book and Uh, having a book that's been pretty popular, I think has popularized some of those practices.
4: Yeah. The
3: the other aspect of the book is, of course, that uh, there's always this sort of uh, uh, leapfrog uh, relationship between uh, research and practice. And I think in more practically oriented uh, disciplines like software development, there are a lot of times when practice actually leads research. And so part of the book is capturing research, but part of the Book is also just capturing practice, and uh, one of the practices that I did not talk about in the first edition of the book, for example, uh, is the daily build practice. Yeah, and which is is interesting to me in hindsight that I didn't talk about that because uh, it was a practice that I had seen uh, pretty well entrenched at Microsoft. Uh, I recognized the value of the practice. Uh, I think that it was something that was being discussed, and yet. Uh, I didn't actually write about it until about two years later when I when I wrote about it in a column for IEEE Software. And I think at that time, that was essentially the first place that it got referred to in print. Hmm. And uh, it's funny because I certainly didn't make up the practice. I kind of regarded myself as a latecomer to the practice. Uh, and yet, uh, it took um, print media quite a while to catch up with uh, uh, what people were actually doing. Mm. I think that's been true for literally for centuries by the way, uh, and it's interesting now with the web uh, uh somebody's going to be talking about the practice uh you know almost as soon as it's used these days
1: well, and this is a classic example of good research presented well right I mean you have all of your experience, but as you're saying, you cited a lot of research things that you know didn't exist in one place, and then you you told them uh you, you brought us these things with just Uh, incredible style and humor Um, humor particularly (laughs) I love this where is this uh, this quote right here right from the beginning of chapter 2 where you say computer science is some of the most colorful language of any field in what other field can you walk into a sterile room carefully controlled at 68 degrees Fahrenheit and find viruses Trojan horses worms bugs bombs crashes flames twisted sex changers and fatal errors (laughs)
3: <laughs> well, I think, um, you know, one of the interesting things about the web is that it almost requires you to have a short attention span. <laughs> yeah, that's
2: true. Well, and, certainly uh, built by you, a bunch um, of people who do.
3: <laughs> right. Well, I I wonder sometimes if uh, the combination of the web and video games and all that, you know, if those things aren't actually uh, contributing to a whole society that has short attention spans. and. Maybe that's just the old fogey in me talking, and maybe that's just the future, but I don't know. I, I tend to think that even with the web, where you tend to get information in a pretty fragmented way, uh, that there's still value in having a single person, and in particular a single mind, performing an editing function on that content, yeah. going through, making some value evaluative decisions about what's worth talking about, what's not worth talking about. You know, putting things in perspective, saying this particular practice gets a lot of airtime, but it's really not that useful, and this other less well-known practice is actually much better. And uh, there's some value in having a single authorial voice uh, uh, presenting uh, a broad uh, cross-section of topics. And so that's that's been a big part of what I've tried to do, really, in, in all my books.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more, and you nailed it. Um, it should be noted. Uh, let's get into some of the meat of, um, and particularly the earliest chapters where you're talking about design strategies and architecture and things like that. There's some real gems in here. One of them uh, I picked up on because we were just talking to Billy Hollis about, uh, the average cost of fixing defects based on when they're introduced and detected. In other words, you know, Billy was, Billy's all about, you know, Write the code as, as well as you can the first time and go back and fix the bugs and, you know, get it into production. Just get it out there and and, and then we'll, you know, what's all this emphasis on uh, a test, you know, test, 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 test. He said, you know, when you get 12 people doing the job of one person, you better have 12 times the value, I think he said. And, Richard, you brought up the,
2: the I tr- referenced uh, right. your stuff, Steve, saying – You know, Steve told us, if you catch it downstream, it's costing you 200 times more to fix
1: it then than to fix it earlier. Right. So perhaps you're getting more than 12 times the value.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I think um, there are two reasons to focus on quality assurance in software, generically speaking. Uh, And they overlap to some degree, but they're also separate to some degree. Uh, The first reason to focus on quality assurance is for the sake of improving Final end product quality, and uh, the second reason is for uh, reducing development costs and shortening schedules. Uh, those two motivations overlap to a point, point. and for for most of the companies that are out there that are not developing safety critical software, those two motivations overlap really to a high degree. That is, uh, we focus on quality in ways that cut development costs and shorten schedules at the same time, and uh, there comes a point where we've gotten as much mileage out of that approach as we can get, and we still don't have the level of reliability that we need for safety-critical systems like flight control software or analog brake software or uh, software in your pacemaker or that kind of thing. And at that point, we actually have to start spending money to get to higher quality levels. Uh, Up to that point, I think quality really is free. Uh, the average project spends somewhere between 40 and 80% of its total effort on unplanned defect correction work. Wow. And uh, in other words, low quality is the single largest cost driver for the average software project. Hmm. So we really ought to be looking at uh, better ways of... Uh, getting the defects out sooner.
1: I'd like to mention that uh, this portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik, Telerik R-A-D controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for Windows Forms and ASP.NET applications, and you can find them online at www.telerik.com. You know, I guess if I could just go back in Billy's defense a little bit, um, you know, he, he and another guy basically, and maybe maybe there's a total of six people I said that he says he has working on projects. You know, they're working on software for medium sized businesses. That's a that's a bit different from, you know, large teams of people, you know, say at Microsoft working on something like a dot net framework or a Vista um you know, do do you think that that these kinds of uh, practices and procedures become more and more necessary the more people that you add, and the more you know, the bigger the project is?
3: I do. I think that, uh, in fact, one of the hazards of uh, doing the kind of thing I do and writing about uh, effective software practices is that in the back of the there's always a subtext to the conversation, which is that all of this stuff varies depending on what kind of software you're working on, and right. so. If you're working on a, a just kind of an internal use business application, there are certain practices that are going to be appropriate. If you're working on a safety-critical application, there are certain other practices that are most appropriate. If you were to try to apply the uh, safety-critical development approach to the business, in-house business software, you would just be crushed by the amount of overhead and what seems like a lot of bureaucracy. And, and indeed, for that kind of software, it, it is a lot of bureaucracy. On the other hand, if you were to take the approach to a safety-critical system that worked very, very well on an in-house business system, uh, it could be recklessly irresponsible. So hmm. uh, what, that's one of the reasons that I'm really attached to this uh, idea of software practices being tools in a toolbox you use different tools for different kind of jobs, and, and uh, that toolbox metaphor is one that uh, I think has uh, served software very well over the years. It's uh, quite important to realize not not every problem is a nail that needs to be addressed with a hammer. We also need right. other tools, too.
2: You mentioned Microsoft, and I know you're based in Bellevue. Uh, what's your relationship to Microsoft?
3: Uh well, my relationship over the years has been uh, has been quite varied. Uh, I uh, I suppose my initial relationship at Microsoft was that uh, back in about 1989, I had been working on the the uh, outline and some prototype material for Code Complete, and I got a call from a headhunter saying, uh, "Do you want to go to work for three months at Microsoft uh, on just a contract basis?" And it meant that I had to delay working on my book, but I thought, you know, I haven't been inside Microsoft. And back in 1989, Microsoft was still really the hot company. Right. I don't think you could really say that anymore, but back then it really was the the place that, that was the, you know, the, the pinnacle of a place to work as a software developer. So I said, sure, I'll just delay the work on my book and I'll go get some experience because I uh, I think if I have a chance to see how Microsoft looks from the inside, I should do that. So... My, six, my, my original three-month engagement ended up being more like a year engagement, uh, and it turned out to be very, very influential on Code Complete. I think that if I hadn't had the Microsoft experience, I would have written a book that was more of a doctrinaire software engineering book, and uh, I got a couple of people there who pushed me pretty hard on, you know, why do you think this works? Uh, you know, we don't do it here, and uh, at first I resisted that, but as time went by, I accepted it and just said, right, I think that, if somebody publishes a book in the early 1990s that doesn't explain, that, that attempts to explain how software development works, but that can't explain uh, how Microsoft is successful, then I think that that book is really, um, you know, it can't possibly be seen as a representative book. And I suppose today you could say the same thing uh, maybe about Google or, um, you know, maybe a broader set of companies these days. Where, uh, But I think that, you know, you can't just brush off the practices that are used by successful companies. And, and in the old days, people would say, well, you, know, you don't have to look at Microsoft's technical practices. It's all marketing. And, well, yeah. there's <laughs> at least the marketing expertise there, but the technical work has to at least be good enough uh, to support the marketing. And and uh, and uh, so I think the uh, same thing applies these days. Uh, you really have to – any sort of uh, overarching explanation of effective software practices – can't just ignore places like uh, Google or Yahoo or Amazon or uh, YouTube or, you know, the various other uh, uh, high-growth sites out there.
1: So, Steve, a Sufi mystic once told me, requirements are like water. They're easier to build on when they're frozen.
3: (laughs) I think that's a quote from my book.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you have it attributed to anonymous, though. So this is in a section called the myth of stable requirements. And, man, that hits home. Uh, You know, on the one hand, you need requirements. But on the other hand, you can't delude yourself into thinking that they'll never change. So what I like about what your your practical approach to this is, all right, well, let's get prepared for changes. So how do you handle what happens when requirements change? And there's a whole bunch of uh, suggestions that you have here, including... Dump the project you know that you might if you're not going to dump it at least think about dumping it, and what would that you know what is this something we ought to think about
3: It's an interesting point, and it hardly ever comes up in practice uh, at least it it hardly ever comes up substantively it comes up often rhetorically but not substantively yeah uh, and uh if you look at the the statistics on this depending on what study you look at, somewhere between maybe 15 and 25 percent of all software projects conducted in the U.S. end up being canceled. That is, they people work on them for quite a while. The companies that sponsor them invest a lot of money, but they at some point pull the plug and basically just dump all the work in the garbage can. That is a, just a tremendous amount of economic waste. If you think about the fact that something like uh, in round numbers, something like a quarter of all the software development effort in the U.S. goes into the garbage can. It really is just staggering. Sounds right, depressing. It <laughs> is, and uh, so my uh, my plea in that section is not so much uh, dump more projects in the garbage can. My plea is, if you're going to think about canceling the project ever, think about it sooner rather than later. And uh, if you can make a determination five or ten percent of the way into the project that. Uh, there's no longer a good business case for the project or there are insurmountable technical challenges, and you can pull the plug then. Well, I think there's no harm done. I think you've done some exploration, and that just goes with the territory. We ca- Software development is always you know, often working in uncharted territories. We have to do some work to see whether that mountain pass is, in fact, passable or
4: impassable. Yeah.
3: Um, but we don't actually have to take a whole crew up to the top of the mountain pass in the dead of winter. <laughs> And uh, you know, and uh, uh, you know, endure the the harsh elements. We can actually you know send out a surveying crew, or you know, go up there when the weather's nice and see what it looks like. Okay. Uh, in other words. Be much more focused in exploring whether the project is actually going to work out before we make a big commitment to to dive into it whole and, hog.
1: And just to be clear, that was one of like uh, seven um, uh, suggestions about uh, making the best of changing requirements during construction. Uh, one is to use the requirements checklist at the end of the section to assess the quality of your requirements. You have an actual uh, a checklist, which is good. Uh, make sure everyone knows the cost of requirements changes. Very true. Set up a change control procedure, use the uh, development approaches that accommodate changes, and then dump the project if you, if you absolutely need to, or at least talk about it. And then keep you, as you said before, keeping your eye on the business case for the project. Yeah, those are, that's just good, solid common sense, as far as, you know.
3: Well, this whole area of changing requirements is, is a little bit of a dicey area, and I think that... Um, It's an area that in the last few years, and I think especially associated with the agile movement, has been subject to, uh, in some cases, a little bit more heat than light.
4: Yeah.
3: I think that um, certainly the vast majority of developers I talk to, if they could have their ideal, would really like to develop in a project where they can know the requirements and the requirements don't change. It It is, in fact, the holy grail. And so the question in my mind is not really would we like to have stable requirements? Because I think most people would. The question is, is it really practical to try to get stable requirements? Is the business environment one that is stable enough to support that? Or is is it really the case that when we try to get stable requirements, we're pretending that we can do something that we really can't? And I think a lot of the rhetoric in the agile movement uh, really claims that it's never possible to get stable requirements, and and that (laughs) just flies in the face of decades of experience. Uh,
4: Mm. While
3: it is not the most common case, uh, we see lots of cases, especially in uh, regulated industries, safety critical software, and so on, where not only can we get stable requirements, but in fact, uh, it's imperative for the sake of developing software to the level of quality we want uh, that we have some stability in the requirements. Now, having said that, Uh, That's not to say that you can go out and use uh, 1970s or 1980s requirements practices and get stable requirements. Mm. I think we've seen a lot of good practices emerge even in the last 10 or 15 years in the requirements area. And uh, I think one of the big issues now is that uh, there are practices that exist that in many contexts will, in fact, allow you to dig up the uh, requirements that will be good, pretty stable requirements. Uh, but they're not practices that you're going to learn just by reading a three-page magazine article uh, or uh, just by having a 10-minute talk with your coworker. They actually are are deeper, more sophisticated practices, and uh, and that's really true of the whole software field for that matter. I think uh, 20 years ago, I think you could probably invent most of the key practices on your own. Uh, These days, though, there are just too many bright people who have already been down these roads and have done good work, and so I don't think it's possible anymore, even for really smart people, to invent all the good practices on their own. And requirements is certainly a, an example of that. So,
2: Well, and it seems like a waste of time. Good people have figured this out. Why aren't you using that?
3: I, I think there's some psychology there, which is, if you're 20 years old, it's really easy to say, it's a waste of time. I should learn uh, what other people have done. And Certainly if you're still a student or haven't even really started your career yet, it's really easy to say, well, I should just read the stuff that's out there. And there's a huge amount of good stuff out there now. If, on the other hand, uh, you know, you're know you 45 or 55, uh, then uh, it's probably a little bit more uh, uh, threatening to say, well, gee, a lot of stuff has happened in the 20 or 30 years I've been working in the industry. My undergraduate education really is not all that relevant anymore. And uh, I actually need to do quite a bit of work to catch up with the current practice. And so we've got, and in the background, too, we've had a pretty dramatic and quick improvement in the kinds of undergraduate programs that people go through now. So I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that, you know, very commonly now we run into cases where the, uh, you know, the 22-year-old graduate or uh, from an undergraduate, say, software engineering program really does have enormous. Enormously more book knowledge than uh, the average practitioner who's been working in the field for 20 years, and that's a it's a really interesting dynamic. Of course, the book knowledge is not the same as hands-on knowledge, so of course there's a, a good possibility for constructive uh, cross-pollination there, and hopefully it works out that way a lot of the times. But there's also opportunity, unfortunately, for people to feel threatened uh, in one direction or the other, and I think that happens some of the time too.
2: And you, you for, fall firmly into the software engineering camp. And I say that having read After the Gold Rush show, it's a pretty safe bet.
3: <laughs> yeah, I think I'm guilty as charged on that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and you get a sense now that uh, the educational uh, fields have grown to the point where we can really say we're producing software engineers out of school?
3: Well, I I... I'm certainly not the only one who's claiming that at this point. Uh, I published after the gold rush in uh, late 1999, and at that time, uh, there were, I think, uh, fewer than five undergraduate software engineering programs in the United States, and uh, maybe one or two in Canada. uh, UVIC being one of them. One, maybe one. Yeah. and uh, at that time, none had been accredited by the the organizations that accredit either computer science or software engineering programs. Situation is much different today. Today, there are more than there are about 50 undergraduate programs in the United States, and uh, something like uh, uh, 10 to 20 undergraduate programs in Canada. That is true software engineering undergraduate degree programs. There are quite a few programs that have been accredited. Uh, in both the U.S. and Canada, by uh, it's uh, the crediting organization in the U.S. is called ABET, and in Canada, I believe it's the CSAB. Uh, and uh, uh, so, really, night and day. I mean, we're in a position now where these programs are. When I wrote after the Gold Rush, uh, none of the programs had yet produced their first graduating class. So, uh, in practical terms, they were having zero impact on on the industry because they hadn't produced anyone who was even working in industry. Right. Uh, but even now we've had you know literally thousands of people graduating from these programs, and as time goes by, we'll have of course uh, more and more uh, the longer these programs are in existence and so uh, so yeah, and these aren't huge numbers, but as time goes by, I think the accumulation uh, will start to have an effect.
1: Steve, whose job is it to worry about and to educate people and the team about uh, software the software development process? Is it the manager's job is it the developer's job a little of both is this a, is this something that's vague?
3: It's something that's very vague and and uh, and very vague and also problematic and uh, I actually would put the ultimate responsibility for that not on the individual developer or on the manager uh, but on uh, or typically it would go to the role of the vice VP of development VP of engineering. Uh, that kind of a title in the organization. And the reason for that uh, is that developers are typically, uh, uh, their performance is evaluated based on how much work they get done. And if there's something that they need to do that uh, trades off the the, the short-term success or performance of an individual project against the long-term health of the organization, they typically will be penalized in essence for thinking in those directions. Now, it's not true everywhere, but I think that's the common case. Project managers are in exactly the same boat. You get a pr- Most project managers are going to be evaluated on their performance against specific targets for the specific project that they're focused on. And uh, if you say, well, look, you should take your staff out and put them in training for five days on this six-month project, it's not too hard for them to Kind of do the math on that and say, well, gee, I've only got you know 26 week or 26 weeks to begin with, and I'm going to lose a couple weeks to vacation and holidays, and you want me to take another week out yeah. for uh, to go through some training that at best is going to have a break even effect on this specific project, even if it's very very positive ROI in the long run for the organization. So it's against the individual manager's self interest as well. And so what I think you need to have is it needs to be pushed to the level of the person who's able to trade off the needs of one project against the needs of other projects, and who's able to prioritize the needs of the organization uh, against the needs of individual projects. That typically is somebody at a director level or higher in an organization, but... uh, They have
2: to look at a multi-project level. The benefit of that training is only going to return significantly through several projects
3: well uh, it really depends it could depending on the length and nature of the project sometimes the training pays off right now and there are lots of practices that that is true of um, but if you're going to ask the general question who should be responsible for this uh, in the in the overall sense I think it definitely has to be someone uh, who has a multi project uh, 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 vision
2: now you've you had a new book, I guess a couple of years ago, on professional software development, which was really more focusing on the growing yourself as a developer and as a career and as a developer.
3: Right. Yeah, in that book, I identified three levels of professionalism. And that book really is, uh, is uh, in essence, the second edition of After the Gold Rush. And it's expanded quite a bit from the first edition and, and uh, also modernized quite a bit. But Um, In that book, I identify three levels of professionalism, individual, organizational, and uh, industry, and really focusing on individuals need to focus on what they can do for themselves. Organizations is really what we were just talking about. If you're responsible for an organization, how do you, you know, who needs to be responsible for that, and what do they need to do? How
2: do you grow your team's quality overall?
3: Mm. Right. And then industry level, too, it's helpful to have industry support, uh, like we've been talking about the uh, undergraduate programs. Well, <laughs> there's a big difference between an organization taking somebody who had a pretty comprehensive education five years ago and giving them an update versus saying, look, organization, you have to start from scratch. You can't assume these people have ever seen anything before. Right. Yeah, that is a much taller order. And uh, there are a very small number of very large organizations that actually have stepped up to that challenge, but uh, not very many. And of course, you can't expect a small company to do that.
2: And I was noticing, I was looking at on the Construct site, the professional development ladder, uh, jumping back into that whole organizational development, this idea it, you provide some great material here on helping organizations uh, create a structure for growing their, their uh, development teams.
3: Well, it's interesting. I, I do like to think that Constructs, my company, has taken a leadership role in, in the industry on this particular topic. And uh, it struck me maybe 10 years ago, that in many other occupations, there is a pretty well-defined career path. You know, you know when you start out kind of what the next five to ten years of your career are going to look like. You know you you're know a, what
2: your promotion looks like.
3: Right, or, or I guess you could call it a promotion, but let's say you're a medical doctor. You know that you're going to go to medical school, and then you're going to have a residency, and uh, then you're going to take board exams, or if you go into a specialty, you'll have some maybe additional residency and maybe some other specialty exams. And so you kind of know what the first several years of your career are going to look like. And if you're a lawyer, you go to work, you have some, maybe some clerkships while you're still in law school, and then you go to work for a law firm and you work for several years as an associate, and then you make junior partner, and then you know, a few more years go by and maybe you make a senior partner or managing partner or something like that. Um, and really the same is true for all kinds of occupations, like uh Uh, whether you're in accounting or uh, teaching or engineering, uh, there are some pretty well-defined career paths. And it just struck me that in software, there really generally is not a notion of a career path. A software uh, professional's career path historically has largely been defined by uh, what projects projects they've worked on and what technologies they've worked in. And that's pretty much it. And so we tried to put together something that really looked more, not just like a A linear series of different experiences, but more like a progression where you actually are uh, more consciously trying to become increasingly uh, proficient at at what you're doing.
2: It's fascinating stuff. And as a guy hiring developers, it's a constant challenge to say, "How am I gonna?" You can't keep those guys unless you give them a good path. The talented folks move on as their only promotion path unless you create a system that allows them to grow in their roles.
3: We see that a lot, too. I mean, my company does, uh, we would spend about half our business on training and about half our business on consulting. And uh, on the consulting side, we see that pretty routinely, that uh, companies uh, have a hard time retaining good people. And uh, unfortunately, that cultural element you mentioned of, uh, <laughs> you know, you'll hire somebody from the outside at a higher salary, than you'll pay your really good people on the inside. Or maybe there are barriers to how large the raises can be to help people catch up. It's a, a sad fact of life that there are companies out there that will lose a good person and then rehire them two years later at a salary that they could never have gotten to by staying with the company the whole time. So yep,
1: I've seen that in more than more than a few cases.
3: Yep.
2: And moving into the in, looking at professional development at the industry level, I mean, you're really talking about this concept of certification and licensing. There's so many different organizations in the computing space, whether you're talking about Microsoft, IEEE, and so forth, that are offering some kind of certification, and I really get the sense that nobody trusts that. Nobody's going to look at your paperwork to say, yes, you're capable of doing this development. They want to look at your work, and even then... There's long trial periods. They're really concerned about the skills of the people they hire.
1: Yeah, Steve, we've talked about this before several times on the show, and I think what Richard and I seem to agree on is that it's true in software development that the paper doesn't mean anything. It's, you know, how do you think on your feet? How do you solve problems that matters? And anybody can learn to pass those tests. But but not just in, in other aspects of IT, though, uh, you know, where there's only one way to do something, that, you know, managing a router or something like that, that uh, that certification can be very helpful. But, but what do you think about, as Richard says, what do you think about certification of the software development process?
3: Well, I, I'm going to have to give you a little bit of a long-winded answer to this question, unfortunately. Um, one of the things I learned between the after the Gold Rush published in 99 and Professional Software Development published in 2004 was that uh, licensing and certification are much more controversial topics than I thought. I knew in 1999 they were controversial topics. I did not know how controversial they were. And uh, if you go look on Amazon, for example, and you read the reviews of either After the Gold Rush or Professional Software Development, you'll see that the reviews that um, slam slam. either book are not slamming the book per se but they're mostly slamming the concept of uh, licensing or certification and it's really kind of frightening when you think about it. They actually, any book that even talks about these topics gets a bad review. It's like... It Touch some
1: pain there or something.
3: Yeah. And so I, I think that there's a lot of uh, fear, uncertainty, and doubt there. Um, the first thing we have to do is make a clear differentiation between licensing and certification. Uh, certification is voluntary. Nobody ever has to become certified. Uh, it's simply a skills differentiator. You want people to know that you're good at something, and so you go out and you get some kind of certification, whether it's a Novell or Microsoft or Oracle or, or, or possibly a IEEE uh, a CSDP certification. Uh, licensing is an entirely different animal. Licensing is uh, regulated at the governmental level Uh, and uh, is a requirement that before you can perform any kind of work uh, of the type that is licensed, you actually have to get a license. And that's subject to, at least in theory, to governmental review. Um, So these are two pretty different topics. They both are attempts to improve the skills of the practitioners working in a field, but they are pretty different approaches. Um, In in, uh, software, really we have only one general purpose certification, which is the IEEE's uh, uh, Certified Software Development Professional, or CSDP. And that program is relatively new, and there are not huge numbers of people who have been certified at this point. I think the current number is something like 700 certificate holders. It's, I think it's under 1,000, so uh, yeah. it's not enough. And and that's uh, a challenge, because uh, if you have so few people who are certified, then we're really not at the point yet where an employer can say, I want to hire someone who's a CSDP, that's a requirement of the job, because you're just restricting the talent pool too much.
2: Yeah, you're just saying, I'm not going to do this job.
3: Yeah, in essence, that is what you're saying. And so for the time being, I think that the people who go and get their CSDPs are not doing it because they have access to more jobs or anything like that. They're doing it because they take great pride in their profession, and they want some external recognition that they've gone the extra mile and at least have half a clue about what they're doing. So I think that's what it does.
1: You haven't met very m- the people that I've met in this industry, apparently, then, because I know a lot of people who get software certifications for the sole purpose of being able to outcompete for jobs. And when it, I've seen this over and over again. When it comes down to do the work uh, that your certification says that you know how to do... Uh, you know, uh, blah, 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 can't
3: do it. Well, I, I would make a clear distinction between technology certifications and more skills-oriented certifications. And I think that with only one exception, the certifications that are out there are technology. Uh, well, that, that's actually not quite right. Most of the certifications, anything that has a Microsoft or a Novell or a, a company name on it is a technology certification. Yeah. So no disagreement there at all.
2: Okay. But the IEEE one is a general skills. I mean, I guess there's a different motivation there.
3: And and that's not to say that it's foolproof any more than having a lawyer pass the bar exam or having mm. a, a doctor uh, pass the medical boards uh, is foolproof. And, and since we're still in the early stages, it's probably less foolproof uh, than we might find in more established professions. So mm. the goal really... I, I, the ideal goal, of course, is to weed out 100% of the people who are not qualified and to admit 100% of the people who are qualified, and that's clearly the goal. Yeah. As a practical matter, you're going to admit some people who aren't who are not qualified, and you're going to you're going to restrict some people who are qualified, and of course both of those are problems. And as time goes by, we'd like to think that. Um, the, the certifications that are sponsored by professional societies, in this case the IEEE uh, CSDP, um, that you know that will be pretty effective and not rule out too many people who should be uh, listed as qualified and not give the qualification to too many people who uh, who don't deserve it. Hmm. The the model I think, or the closest an analogy to the IEEE CSDP is the uh, Project Management Institute's PMP exam or PMP certification, which is subject to all the same problems that I just mentioned. Uh, But they have something like, uh, I think it's something like 50,000 people who have gotten their PMP designation now. And so unlike the CSDP, where you really can't put in a job help wanted ad that uh, you want someone with their CSDP, (laughs) the PMP you can, and you do see that quite routinely now. That's exciting. And you still have the same discussions, though. You still have people who say, "Well, I worked with this guy who had his PMP, and he really wasn't very good as a project manager. And I worked with this other guy yeah. who didn't have his PMP, and he was the best project manager I ever saw." And uh, those those kinds of anomalies are are going to be there. And uh, you know, but you see the same thing in other fields too. You'll find people who don't get any relief by going to their regular doctor, and so they'll go to some uh, you know practitioner of alternative medicine who doesn't have any official. Uh, credentials and they'll get more relief from that person. So it's not like this problem is unique to software.
1: This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Developer Express. Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. Steve, do you think software is getting more complex or more simple or neither? It's just sort of coasting along.
3: Uh, I think it goes in waves. And uh, I think that when you see uh, a paradigm-shifting new technology uh, or context like the web was or the web has been, the initial forays into that new technology tend to be pretty small scale. And so there might be a lot of technology challenges because maybe you really are the first person who's trying to do something in that technology, but people don't tend to bite off really ambitious projects. They tend to do pretty small-scale projects. As the technologies become more stable and better documented and better supported and, in general, mature, and as organizations gain more experience in them, then they tend to bite off larger and larger uh, applications. So you go back to 1997, 1998, you probably can't point to a lot of really large, complex web applications, um, whereas if you go out today, of course, you know, it'd be impossible to point to all the large, complex web applications that are out there now. And I saw the same thing uh, when I got into desktop computing in the mid-'80s. You know, pretty small-scale PC applications at first, but as time went by, more and more complicated. Same thing as uh, companies moved into Windows programming initially started out with pretty small-scale, simple applications, became more complex. Same thing with Macintosh applications as well. So uh, I think this is just one of those uh, things that ebbs and flows. And and interestingly enough, I think that uh, we talked before about confusing practices between large and small projects or between safety-critical and house business systems. You get the same kind of confusion about practices that, work well in bleeding-edge technology versus practices that work well in more stable, mature technology.
2: Hmm. Steve, you had a long-running relationship now with the IEEE. Maybe we should talk to the listeners about uh, the value of that. Should all software developers have a connection to this organization?
3: Well, for me personally, getting in touch with the IEEE pretty early in my career was a bit of a watershed event. Uh, I had been working in very small development shops, meaning uh, <laughs> meaning less than ten developers for about the first four years of my career, and uh, and uh, felt fairly isolated. Uh, I started doing a little bit of reading on my own, and I found a couple of books that I just happened to stumble across, in- including The Mythical Man Month, and including Jordan and Constantine's design book, and those were pretty eye opening because all of a sudden I realized I really didn't have to. Uh, reinvent the wheel, I, I could actually learn from other people's experience. Uh, but then I heard about the IEEE, and I can't even tell you where I first heard about it, uh, but I subscribed to IEEE Software Magazine, and once I started receiving the magazine, uh, it was really eye-opening because I realized I wasn't the only one who actually found this stuff interesting. I wasn't the only one who was trying to figure out what are the good books and uh, you know how can I get better at this. And so even though I was pretty isolated in my particular work environment, I felt this sense of community with the other people who were uh, reading the magazine or publishing in the magazine, that kind of thing. So for me personally, that was a that was a pretty big deal. And uh, as time has gone by, I think my, you know, my perspective on it has changed. And so now I really view it as more of a professional membership organization. And as such, it has an ability to have an influence that, say, private companies have uh, like Google or Microsoft are just not in a good position to have, it has a, a objectivity and a lack of self-interest that, uh, that a commercial enterprise just, just can't have. And so um, my involvement with the IEEE in more recent years is focused more on that kind of thing, uh, trying to make sure that uh, as professionalism standards get uh, defined, that they're defined in, in constructive ways and participating in projects like the uh, software engineering body of knowledge project and uh, uh, that kind of thing.
2: And you've been pretty deeply involved in that. I mean, editor-in-chief of uh, IEEE Software?
3: Yeah, I spent wow. uh, I spent four years as editor-in-chief of IEEE Software. It was an extremely stimulating and valuable experience and uh, uh, really put me in touch with, with uh, pretty much everyone in the world who cares about this stuff, and that's not that much of an exaggeration. Sure. Uh, you know, I was in regular contact, uh, daily contact with... You know, everybody who writes books and articles and, uh, you know, it was really, really, uh, I felt like I was at the center of a web and that all the roads led to me. And it was really enormously stimulating to to be in that role. Uh, After four years, it was also enormously exhausting. And so I was (laughs) happy to step away from it. But certainly uh, for a time, I I wouldn't have traded it for anything.
2: And these days, uh, a, a member of the executive committee, what does that really mean?
3: You know, I'm not really sure uh, why that is out there. There's this. Uh, Go to
1: dinner it, every week.
3: No, no, it's uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's basically something I get just because I've been involved in in the past, and I'm not an active member. Of it's that. more
2: it's more of an emeritus type thing. They yes, want to keep you related,
3: right? And and huh? I because the IEEE is virtually all uh, volunteer. Uh, my participation has been 100 percent on a voluntary basis, and most of the people that you ever hear affiliated with the IEEE are also doing it on an all-volunteer basis. Right. Uh, volunteers' ability to contribute definitely comes and goes. And, you know, it depends on the demands on your time at work and at home and, you know, your level of interest. And so even in the time I've been involved, I've seen people who have kind of dropped out and then dropped back in and... In my current phase of life, I'm really more dropped out, but I expect that at some point in the future, I'll drop back in.
1: Sure. So IEEE, just for the listeners who don't know, is a standards body, right?
3: Uh, IEEE is a uh, a number of things. The IEEE is, a, and I don't even know what the acronym stands for exactly, it's something like the Institute for Electric and Electrical Engineers. Mm. Uh, it's the largest professional organization for Um, for electrical engineers, and that includes uh, computer scientists. Um, The largest interest group within the IEEE is called the Computer Society, and that's for people who are interested in computer hardware and software. That has about 100,000 members. The IEEE itself has about 300,000 members. Uh, And they um, both uh, oversee standards development uh, as maybe the most visible thing that they oversee, but they also uh sponsor large numbers of uh, conferences. They publish uh, other books in addition to publishing the standards. Uh, they publish lots of different magazines and journals. So um, there are quite a few different uh, activities that they're involved in.
1: Yeah, and you can't use Firewire without knowing who they are, at least. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineering
2: Incorporated.
1: Yeah. What's the? What are some of the the standards other than thirteen ninety four, which is the the FireWire that? I mean, there's hundreds of, probably thousands of these things. Well, at least thirteen hundred ninety four of them, right?
3: <laughs> yeah. Are uh, there I'm, any new
1: standards coming out of IEEE that that affect .dot net developers per se? I,
3: I'm probably the wrong guy to ask. <laughs> there are other people who are really deeply involved in standards and specifically in software engineering standards. Mm. That really has not been a major focus of mine, and so I, I, I can't even recite. Uh, You're almost, more
1: interested in new ideas and programming practices and that kind of stuff, right?
3: It's true, and, and in recent years, uh, my attention has shifted much more to my company, and that's kind of uh, what's giving me energy these days.
1: Oh, cool.
2: So one more book, uh, the new one, Software Estimation, Demystifying the Black Art. And I know you worked on this well, actually you work on all your books for a long time, but this was really long, like eight years? You worked on this book?
3: This book had a very long gestation. Did you period. estimate
1: it would take eight years to finish? Uh, it?
3: I got really tired of hearing that joke. Uh, <laughs> I think the main benefit of getting it published is that I'd no longer have to hear the joke how long estimated uh. book. Yeah. <laughs> After eight years, that joke got pretty old. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> I,
1: it's low-hanging fruit, you know. I take what I can get.
3: Yeah. Well, yeah, well, well-picked, well low-hanging fruit. Um, so, yeah, I um, I had signed the contract for that book in uh, 1998, I think. And uh, I had a, a number of, uh, of uh, work events and life events and other book events that ended up just keep pushing that book back. Um, between the time I signed that contract for that book and it finally came out, I also published uh, after the gold rush. I published Professional Software Development and the second edition of Code Complete. Right. Um, so I wasn't completely dormant during that time, but um, the estimation book was pretty dormant. Uh, but but actually, I think it was good for the book because um, I my company has a two day seminar that we teach on software estimation. Um, I've taught that class probably around a hundred times, and I have other instructors who also teach the class and uh, at least one of them has taught it I think more times than I have and uh, we learned a lot from teaching the class that's the first book I've written uh, where the class came first and the book came second and I think it's pretty common when you look at books that are published to see that they've uh, risen out of a class but for me that was a new experience I've always developed the class after writing the book and this was kind of the opposite when I actually got into writing the book the writing actually went very very quickly um, I uh, was able to carve off some time in the, in the fall of 2005 when uh, it was just uh, happened to be a quiet time. There wasn't much on my schedule, and I was able to focus on the book. And so uh, I put about 300 hours into the book in the fall of 2005 and, uh, and uh, got it cranked out. And, and uh, I'm really glad I did because things have gotten way busier since then. And if I hadn't gotten it done then, I, I probably still wouldn't have it done now.
1: And still be subject to that, joke, <laughs> Steve, right. can I bring you back to uh, Code Complete for a minute and ask you to just, I'm going to rattle off your nine themes in software craftsmanship, and I'd like you to just maybe just say a, a quick sentence or two about each one. Does that sound uh, fun?
3: You're on the second edition?
1: I'm in the second edition, yeah, page 837. Wow, page 837
3: crazy, isn't it? I, I never read books this long myself. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: anyway, I'm sure it'll all come back to you. Number one is conquer complexity.
3: Right. Um, well, this is number one for a reason. Uh, I, uh, I argue elsewhere in the book that managing complexity is probably the single most important thing that uh, developers do at the technical level. And uh, so uh, that really is a huge theme in the book, no question about it.
1: So, you're always striving to simplify and simplify and simplify. And you also say in the book that overengineering is a natural thing that programmers do just out of, you know, for for professional pride. And uh, you give some subtle hints. It's a very psychological book, actually, when you think about, you know, just dealing with the stuff that comes out of, uh, you know, personal interaction with with software developers and managers. But... uh, uh, and and so, yeah. This is a this is I can't tell you how how just fundamentally important that. I mean, I can tell you, but I'm talking to the listeners here. I can't tell you how fundamentally important this one statement is: conquer complexity at every step of the way. When something is getting too big for you to debug. You know, it's time to refactor.
3: <laughs> well, I've got a I've got a quote in here somewhere from uh, Strewstrip. I, I think it's from Stroustrup. Uh, I could be wrong about that. It might be from Kernahan or Ritchie, but um, it's a nice quote on debugging where they say that um, uh, that debugging software takes more mental energy uh, than writing the software in the first place. And so if you're writing software that's at the limits of your ability to comprehend, then by definition, you're going to be incapable of debugging it. Nice. And, uh, Very good. So I, I the, the, the quote in the book is uh, much more eloquent than what I just said, but... Yeah. Um I like this sentiment a lot and uh and I do think that programmers who write code where they're kind of pushing themselves uh are really doing everybody a disservice, you know, you really should be striving to write code such that it's easy for you to understand. And I think one of the highest compliments that a programmer can get is for someone to look at their code and say, "Well, it looks like you didn't get a very challenging assignment because, you know, your code is so stri- simple and straightforward." Yeah. And we all know that Code is simple and straightforward. Code that does not write itself, and uh, there's no there's no programs or no problem so simple that a bad programmer can't make it complicated.
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I think it's a twofold task. One is uh, keeping simple things simple, and the other is uh, taking complex things and trying to uh, carve them up in ways that uh, become simpler when they're carved up than they seemed when they were in their native state.
1: Okay, number two, pick your process.
3: Yeah, I think um, I, I might quibble with myself about whether that really ought to be number two. I, I don't really think that that's the second in terms of importance. Um, mm. But I think, uh, you know, you were just talking about the psychology uh, aspect of the book, and software development really is a matter of creating software, which I think is uh for pretty close to uh, pure thought stuff, and since this is something that comes directly out of people's brains, the psychology of it matters, and I think the sociology of it matters as well because a lot of what we do we do in teams, and the team dynamics affect the software that comes out comes out at the end of the day, and you know, and so what? How do you abstract that? Well, you abstract that with process. So, um, you know, what What are the protocols that you use for uh, interacting as a team and what are the personal protocols that you use for uh, doing your own work? And so just, I think, uh, uh, rising above the day-to-day firefighting and thinking in a more systematic way about how you do what you do uh, it tends to pay off in software. Uh, I tend to think it pays off in everything, but uh, I yeah. think it pays off more in software than, than uh, in a lot of other endeavors.
1: Uh, Number three, write programs for people first, computers second. And I love this quote from Stan Kelly uh, Boodle.
3: (laughs) I love the quote, too. Why
1: don't you read your program, and I'll read my program.
3: His definition of your program is, it's a noun, a maze of non-sequiturs littered with clever, clever tricks and irrelevant comments. Compare my program. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> and my program is a noun, a gem of algorithmic precision, offering the most sublime balance between compact, efficient coding on the one hand and fully commented legibility for posterity on the other. Compare your program.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the book that that came from was the, called The Devil's DP Dictionary, and I actually think it's back in print, but I was... I think I found it at a garage sale or someplace like that. And when I found it, I thought, this is marvelous. Uh, and uh, I looked for it, and it was out of print at the time Code Complete One came out. But, um, you know, I'm really in awe of, uh, of how much humor Stan Kelly Boodle managed to pack into that Devil's DP dictionary. <laughs> it really is a very, very funny book.
1: I'm going to have to go get that now. So write programs for people first, computer second.
3: Right. So I think there the point I'm I'm making is that is that communicating that when you're writing the code, communicating the code to the computer is the minor part of the programmer's job. Using the code as an instrument to communicate with other programmers is the majority part of the programmer's job. And uh, I've got another quote um, in here that I like very much as well uh, on the next page from Michael Marcotti. And uh, do you mind if I read it?
1: No, please. Uh,
3: uh, He says, uh, in the early years of programming, a program was regarded as the private property of the programmer. One would no more think of reading a colleague's program unbidden than of picking up a love letter and reading it. This is essentially what a program was a love letter from Mm -hmm. the programmer to the hardware, (laughs) full of the intimate details known only to partners in an affair. Consequently, programs became larded with the pet names and verbal shorthand so popular with lovers who live in the blissful (laughs) abstraction that assumes that theirs is the only existence in the universe. (laughs) Such programs are unintelligible to those outside the partnership. Very good. And uh, I I think that's it. That's talking about writing the program as though the main point is communicating with the computer. Uh, But code gets read many more times than it gets written and realizing that the primary audience for your code is other human beings, I think subtly shifts your emphasis as you write the code.
1: Very true. Uh, number four, program into your language, not in it.
3: This is a tough uh, a tough uh, theme to explain in the abstract, and especially uh, outside the, the context of the details of the book. But, uh, uh, <laughs> so I don't know if my explanation will make a whole lot of sense, but the basic idea is that uh, well, really, it goes back to the, the comment you made at the beginning about the fact that Code Complete gives a nod to specific programming languages, but is largely program language independent. Mm. And, uh, and uh, what this says is that if people are taking their programming language t- too literally, they may limit themselves to doing
4: uh,
3: all of what the programming language do- supports readily and nothing but what the programming language supports readily.
1: Man, this sounds like Zen, you know?
3: <laughs> you think?
1: I um, mean, is, that any, is there any coincidence there? Do you study Eastern religion?
3: No, not really. Uh, I wouldn't say that at least there's no conscious uh, uh, connection there. Uh, I, I think that my I came to this really from the idea of design, and that is the idea that some programmers design, and essentially their design process is moving around their programming language tokens in their brain until. Um, they get a design that they like, but they're essentially mm. designing in code. Yeah. And I think a more effective way to design is to design at a higher level of abstraction mm. with a piece of paper and a pencil or a whiteboard and, and some di- some uh, you know shapes on a whiteboard. And once you come up with your design, then you figure out how you're actually going to realize that in your programming language syntax. And the one approach where you're doing the design in code really, I think, overly constrains your thinking and tends to give you a Uh, a paucity of design approaches, whereas if you can design in a more language-independent way, at some point, of course, you actually do have to realize your design in the programming language, and there may be designs that you come up with that really are impractical to implement in the programming language, but I think that you'll have a much more rich uh, process of generating the designs if you don't think too hard about the language in the first place. And uh, and then at some point say, okay, here's my favorite design. How is this actually going to work out in the language? Flesh and, out the details. Right. And it usually works out fine, and sometimes it doesn't. So you go to your second favorite design, and that one probably works out fine.
1: <laughs> Nothing a little refactoring can't fix. Uh, number five, focus your attention with the help of conventions.
3: Yeah, I think um, the the interesting point here is that a lot of what we do uh, requires creativity, and a lot of what we do really does not require creativity. And uh, over the years, I've become pretty sensitive to the literal meaning of the word creative, which is to create something. And uh, I think I hear programmers justifying their particular approach to comments or layout or variable naming as something that affects their creativity. And over the years, I've gotten pretty literal about that and have said, you know, it doesn't affect your creativity. It, it's not a matter of creativity. It's a matter of idiosyncrasy. Mm. And, and if I have a programming team with a bunch of idiosyncratic programmers and I work in a group environment where people are reading each other's code, then I've got a big chunk of people's brain power that is going toward changing the formatting, changing the commenting style, changing the capitalization style. Mm. And that is just an utter waste of people's brain cycles. We Mm. really want the brain cycles focused on things that truly are creative, not just idiosyncratic. And that includes things like, you know, how about coming up with a better design idea? Mm. Not just, let's rearrange these braces the way I like them. Mm.
1: Uh, Number six, program in terms of the problem domain. And uh, boy, we've been talking about that a little bit too, haven't we, Richard? Definitely. Definitely.
3: Well, this is a this is a carryover from the first edition of the book, and in the first edition of the book, I think we had people talking a little bit—or not me—but we had various people in the industry talking a little bit about abstraction and so on. I think as we've moved from uh, procedural programming, which was what was going on when the first edition of the book came out, to object-oriented programming, which is what most people are doing in the when the second edition of the book came out, we have a much more prevalent focus on abstraction, and people talk about different levels of abstraction and so on, maybe more than they used to. Um, one of the things that happens when people talk about levels of abstraction and moving to higher levels of abstraction in particular is that it can be kind of a challenge to move to a higher level of abstraction without simultaneously becoming vague. And mm-hmm. that's kind of an issue. And so the challenge is how do you move to a higher level of abstraction and stay specific? And my resolution of that issue is focus on the real-world problem that you're trying to solve.
4: Yeah. And if,
3: instead of thinking of it as higher level of abstraction, you think of it as pushing it closer and closer to the real-world problem and the real-world problems vocabulary.
2: So towards I, the domain, you're, you're abstracting towards the domain away from the system.
3: Right. And that, I think, is a way to keep things specific and informative, not not to make things abstract and vague and uh, i don't know how useful it is to other people but i personally have found that to be a useful guideline that in many cases is it works better and quicker for me than saying move it to a higher level of abstraction if instead the guideline is move it closer to the problem domain i find that provides more guidance
1: well and i i find that that's what i've been doing all along and you just put a put a label on it um which is a good validation of my programming skill and or practice but but, uh, and I, and I, f- I find that, uh, the whole area of domain, uh, specific language and domain specific programming, domain oriented falls into the category of things that I n- would naturally think to do. But anyway, uh, number seven, watch for falling rocks.
3: Yeah, this is uh perhaps <laughs> an overly clever title, but the really, uh, a, a, a synonymous title would be pay attention. And, mm. uh. And uh, I, I had an interesting talk with a good friend of mine a, a few years ago. Uh, we were both at the time probably about 10 years into our careers. He had moved up very, very quickly in a in a good-sized organization. And I asked him what were the keys to his success, and, and he said he thought, he thought that it was really pretty simple. Number one was do what you say you're going to do. Number two was be prepared. And number three was pay attention.
4: Mm, right.
3: Know what's going on around you. Don't just focus on your tiny task that you're working on for the next half hour, but pay attention to what's going on around you. And uh, and so that's kind of what this, this section is about is, you know, if the same thing happens and doesn't work time and time again, well, it's time to maybe look at that and say, why isn't this working? Don't just keep doing it. Pay attention to the fact that it's not working.
2: This is the uh, the step number one in getting yourself out of a hole is stop digging. <laughs> <laughs>
3: exactly
1: yep. hey stupid <laughs> yeah all right number eight and i love this one iterate repeatedly again and again
3: yeah the the editor for the first edition of the book wanted me to change that he uh,
1: thought,
3: thought the title was redundant ah uh, <laughs> dumb
1: dumb dumb dumb
3: so yeah i guess she didn't quite see the humor in it but um Yeah, so this, again, is a little bit of a carryover from the first edition, and uh, I actually uh, ripped out a lot of the discussion of incremental and iterative development. In the first edition of the book, you just didn't find that discussion in other books, but by the time I got to the second edition, you found it in lots of other books, and some of the discussion was really not all that construction-focused, so I pulled out a lot of the stuff from the first edition that had not been so construction-focused, because it's covered, covered better in other places now. Mm. Uh, but I left the theme in because I think that uh, the reality is you are going to iterate. You're going to iterate because we the stuff we do is too complicated to get right on the first try. Sure. And so the question's not are you going to iterate. The question is when are you going to iterate and using what work products are you going to iterate and how expensive and time-consuming and unpredictable is it going to be when you iterate. The most common way people iterate is in the code itself. They write the code, it doesn't work, they write it again. It still doesn't work, they write it again. And we get to the situation where uh, 50 to 80% of a typical project's cost is spent on unplanned defect correction. And so we really want to think more strategically about when are we going to iterate. If we're not quite sure how we're going to write the code, maybe let's iterate the design. Not in code, but iterate it as diagrams or iterate it as a conversation with somebody else. And say, here's what I'm thinking of doing. Is this going to work? And they say, no, because it won't account for this and that. And you say, well, what if I change this? Will that work? And they'll say, well, no, that still won't work because of these other two things. Well, that discussion is an iteration after fashion. And it's usually way more economical to iterate in the discussion or in diagrams than it is to actually write the code and get the syntax right and Mm. test it and fix the defects and then find out you solved the wrong problem. Right. So.
4: Um.
3: So that's really it, and iteration, I think, is still a huge topic, and uh, uh, I think is still an often misunderstood topic, but uh, suffice it to say that I think that there are many, many possibilities, a wealth of possibilities for iterating. A lot of the literature really does not adequately, in my opinion, does not adequately explain all of the, the high leverage possibilities for iteration, but we can certainly iterate within requirements, within high level design or architecture within low level design within code within testing um and we can iterate across all those activities or across pairs of those activities uh so there really are all kinds of possibilities
1: and finally thou shalt rend software and religion asunder
3: uh yeah that title is intended to be a little tongue in cheek as well sure. i <laughs> not again i'm not sure everyone uh understands that that
1: i think it means zealotry really
3: yeah. Right. Right. So it's intended to be a little a little humorous. Yeah. Um I I, uh, I uh, spent some time uh, working with a guy at Microsoft who is a high level guy at Microsoft, and and uh, he had a phrase that I liked. He, he would tell people, "You have to be technical about your technical practices. You have to get technical about it, not get religious about it." And I think what he meant is you have to let you know data or objective criteria drive your technical decision making. Absolutely. Not not unfounded beliefs that you perhaps hold overly zealously. And uh, boy, if you wanted to focus on one thing that sums up a lot of what I've spent my time doing my career, I think this would be it, just trying to um, uh, shine a bright light on some things where there's more religion than fact and trying to insert the facts where they're available or call out the fact that there aren't any facts when they're not available. Yeah. Uh, Separate the hypes and the fads, the hype and the fads from the uh, from uh, uh, the data that's actually got some empirical substance to it.
1: It's refreshing when you meet salespeople from you know any any software company, Microsoft, Oracle, IBM, wherever, and what they're talking about is technical how-to rather than you know uh, this is the greatest thing because, and then they list off a bunch of you know. Things that could be taken one way or the other, you know, uh, we, w- you know, we applaud Microsoft for its evangelism efforts. I mean, we, Richard and I, are both part of the extranet of evangelists that that uh, they they engage with out in the real world. We don't work for Microsoft, but we have access to all this technical information. And the basic evangelism idea is to go out and and you know help people with their technical problems. It's not about sales
3: right it's a it's an interesting uh, I think Microsoft figured out quite a while back that uh, a big part of what was a, a slowing adoption of their technologies was people just didn't understand how to use them so yeah uh, getting people out there who are excited about the technologies and who understand how to use them it seems like a real good approach so it is it is curious though uh, uh, on the sort of the the section in the book that we were talking about that uh, I do meet uh, you know, a fair percentage of software developers who really are put off by any sort of uh, of uh, overselling when they talk to a salesperson. Mm. Yeah, when they uh, argue in defense of a pet technical practice, will employ you know no data or no objective uh, objectivity in defense of their own uh, pet practices, and it does seem that there there might be a bit of a blind spot for some people there.
1: You want a painful experience? Take a software developer to buy a car. <laughs> Ow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Painful for the for the salesperson. How's know. that? Oh, uh, just you know, no no mercy.
3: Oh, no mercy. No yes. mercy. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Hey, you know, you're by your picture here, you're a young guy. How old are you, if you don't mind me asking?
3: I am forty four years old.
1: All right. Well, you look a lot younger than forty four.
3: <laughs> Maybe well, it's an old picture. It could be- <laughs> Old picture. I actually finally took my – I had a, a picture of me in the mountains on my personal website for about 10 years. And I actually think I probably still look older in that picture than I do do regularly. But um, I'm lucky in that both my parents uh, are fairly uh, – have been fairly young looking for their ages. And so um, I guess I have the benefit of good genes.
1: There you go. Hair not falling out anytime soon. <laughs> All right.
3: Don't, don't have to worry about it. We're
1: at 81. Well, this has been an incredible conversation with a a brilliant author and uh, technologist. Steve, thank you very much for being on the show.
3: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me.
1: And uh, any new books in the works that we haven't talked about? (laughs)
3: Uh, There might be, but uh, in the interest of uh, not subjecting myself to years and years more of uh, jokes about when the books will come out, (laughs) I think, Play that a little close to the vest right now.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, there's still a lot more we could talk about, even in Code Complete. So do come back again.
3: All right. My pleasure. Thanks again. Thank you.
1: And we'll see you next week on .NET Rocks.
0: .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com. And at msdnmicrosoftcom d-o-t-n-e-t-r-o-c-k-s Dotnet Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maceolik that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on Dotnet Rocks, including "Toy Boy," the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl never sleeps net Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back.